Our New Testament lesson today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Hear God's word. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be good and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Amen. So I suppose this is where I should again say, if there are any children here who'd like to come up front, I have a special message for you. Um, but it doesn't quite fit. Um, choir, I do have some extra kaleidoscopes. They're down here for you. Um, and I know there's some special people in Connect 3 that might like a, a kaleidoscope, so you're welcome to come down for one of those too. Um, but it does fit here for me to say this. Children of God, I have a message for you today that I hope will be part of your journey into Lent. Mountaintop experiences. Have you ever had one? I imagine moments that rush to your mind include experiences of extreme joy or fulfillment. A child spends a week at Disney World or a week with her grandparents. A young person gets accepted to the university he dreamed about. Young people return from a Montreat youth conference spiritually renewed and tight with their friends. You get a new job. You are on the winning Super Bowl team. These are mountaintop experiences. But let's expand our definition. Let's define mountaintop experiences as moments in time we can point to as pivotal. The death of a loved one, battling cancer, losing a job. These are pivotal moments in our life. Sometimes our mountaintop experiences are as public as being crowned homecoming queen or as private as struggling with depression and substance abuse. And sometimes it is as commonplace as getting married or having a child. A mountaintop experience changes, or at least impacts, our life. Peter, James, and John are about to have their own mountaintop experience as they go with Jesus. Now we can anticipate something is going to happen because they're going up a mountain. Mountains are places where people encounter God in scripture. Moses first encounters God in the burning bush on Mount Horeb, and from there it only gets better. Moses receives the Ten Commandments 
on a mountain. And God covers Moses with God's hand so that God can pass by. Moses is transformed spiritually and physically from his mountaintop experiences. The prophet Elijah is told to go to the top of the mountains so that God could speak to him. From a cave on the mountain, God talks to Elijah, not in the wind or an earthquake, but in the voice of a whisper. Mountains symbolize the border zone between earth and heaven, between the material and the spiritual. For Peter, James, and John, their mountaintop experience with Jesus is about to have profound effects. In Matthew 16, Peter affirms who Jesus is when he declares, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. It seems that no sooner had Peter made this declaration when Jesus foretells his suffering, death, and resurrection. We must wonder if there was doubt among the disciples, and especially Peter. I just said you were the Messiah, and now you're talking about suffering and death? Peter must have thought, you said my name is my name, and it means rock, and you said you would build your church on. The confusion is palpable. But on that high mountain, Jesus' full glory is revealed. He is transfigured. His face is shining like the sun. His clothes are dazzling white. And there, standing with Jesus, are Moses and Elijah. For Matthew and the Jews, the law and the prophets, represented by Moses and Elijah, respectively, are fulfilled in Jesus. And the story of Jesus' encounter on the mountain closely parallels that of Moses. Anna Case Winters explains in her Matthew commentary that there are at least seven points of parallel between Jesus and the Transfiguration and Moses at Sinai. Both the Transfiguration and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai were mountaintop experiences. Jesus takes three companions with him, just as Moses took three. The reference to six days in Matthew recalls a cloud covering Mount Sinai for six days before God spoke to Moses on the seventh day in Exodus. Jesus' face shone like the sun, whereas for Moses, the skin of his face was shining. The bright cloud overshadowing at the transfiguration reminds the reader of the cloud overshadowing Sinai and the manifestation of the glory of the Lord. In both cases, the others who are present react to their transformed state with fear that Moses and Jesus seek to calm. These multiple associations reinforce the identity of Jesus with Moses and affirm Jesus' role as the authoritative interpreter of the law. Elijah's presence has other associations. There was an expectation in the tradition that Elijah would come before the new age was issued in. The encounter with Elijah on the mountaintop provokes them to pose a question. What of this expectation? Jesus affirms this expectation, but makes the bold claim that Elijah has already come. John the Baptist was Elijah. Making this forthright association supports the expectation that the eschaton, has in fact arrived, and that Jesus is the promised Messiah. There is more that follows, however. 
It was not part of the expectation that Elijah would be so poorly received. Of John's reception, Jesus recalls, they did not recognize him, and they did to him whatever they pleased. Now, Peter must have been elated to see Moses and Elijah join Jesus on the mountain. He wants to freeze the moment, put up three tents, a tent for each of them. Peter anticipates a lengthy meeting, a need for shelter, and maybe he even wants to get ready for the Feast of the Tabernacles, which celebrates the harvest and God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt. There is a sense that Peter gets it. The Greek term used would call to mind the Hebrew word used in many texts to indicate the dwelling or presence of God, manifested in the symbols of cloud, fire, or radiant light that descend, overshadow, or lead people. There is an association with the tents or tabernacles that has the Ark of the Covenant in the wilderness wanderings. God's presence and the Holy of Holies in the temple was also identified with the Hebrew word. Well, Peter must have felt redeemed. First the transfiguration of Jesus and now Moses and Elijah. Jesus really was the Messiah Peter proclaimed not too long ago. This is more like it, glory, not suffering. But Peter had it wrong. There would be no time for a spiritual retreat. There was work to be done in the valley. And to think that Jesus was simply one among three to be placed alongside Moses and Elijah was a misunderstanding. Did Peter fully grasp the meaning of what he earlier affirmed, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And then talking. Sometimes in nervousness or overexcitement, we talk, and we talk a lot. The transfiguration was not a time for talking. It was a time for listening, and his words are interrupted by a voice from a bright cloud that overshadowed them. This is my son, the beloved, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. For Matthew, son of God would connote divine or semi-divine being. At the sound of God's voice, the disciples fall prostrate to the ground filled with fear, and through God's voice, the disciples are brought back to reality. Through God's voice, they hear who Jesus is, reminiscent of Jesus' baptism. Still filled with fear and with their faces to the ground, they feel a reassuring touch. It is Jesus. Get up and do not be afraid, Jesus says. And when they look up, Moses, Elijah, Everything they saw and heard are gone. They are there with Jesus, alone. And on their way down from the mountain, Jesus orders them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. We hear nothing more about the transfiguration from that mountaintop until after Jesus' resurrection. This is the only time that Jesus gives an order with a time limit. Once this time limit expired, the disciples would not be able to keep Jesus' identity secret anymore. And it is after the resurrection that these disciples would understand the transfiguration and be able to correctly interpret and proclaim it. The common English Bible paraphrases 
Peter's recollection in 2 Peter. We didn't repeat crafty myths when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quite the contrary. We witnessed his majesty with our own eyes. He received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from the magnificent glory saying, This is my dearly loved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were there with him on the holy mountain. The transfiguration of Jesus on that mountaintop impacted Peter. It was very much part of his ministry after Jesus was raised. Peter understood its significance. The early church did too. For the early church, the transfiguration affirms the early church's foundational belief about Jesus. He was not just another exceptional human being, prophet, or great teacher and example for all. He was the decisive representation of the divine, the source and judge of life. For Matthew and his community, the transfiguration confirmed Jesus' identity as the righteous Son of God, even as it signaled hope for Jesus' followers of a glorious risen life without fear with Jesus. I wonder what the significance of the transfiguration has for us. Is it just another story we read in the Bible? Or do you see it? Do you see the transfigured Jesus, the Son of God in all his glory? This text is asking us to confront the question Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously stated, who is Jesus Christ for us today? Scripture tells us Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets whose radiance is unheralded. He is the bread of life and the light of the world. He is the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. He is the way and the truth. Is this the Jesus you see? As we enter Lent, I leave you with a challenge. A challenge in how you approach Lent, your study or your small group time. As you read and listen and have Lenten conversations, I invite you to think about how you see Jesus. Do you see the transfigured Jesus? Do you see him in his radiance and glory, unlike anything we can imagine? Do you feel his touch calming your fears? C.S. Lewis writes a final word from Aslan in the silver chair. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear, and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind, and the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it's so important to know them by heart, and pay no attention to appearance. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Do you see him? Do you see the transfigured Jesus?